following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. Today is a special day. Uh, it is, of course, my, my last uh, Sunday of preaching as the senior pastor of this church. But on this day, Sunday, June 11, 28 years ago, in a morning worship service at the Howling United Methodist Church, there was a wedding of the pastor and Mavis. <laughs> Two weeks later, we moved to Kent to begin a marvelous journey here. I will be reflecting about that journey this morning in this final installment of the Living in the Vine sermon series. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It has been said that every pastor, upon leaving a church, can take satisfaction in knowing that during the time of the church, he or she has made everybody happy. <laughs> Some were happy to see him come, and others are happy to see him go. Pastors are, of course, human beings. We all have our flaws and failures. I have not made everybody happy. But in most cases, those who were unhappy have left, having long ago given up all hope that I would ever leave. <laughs> when it comes time, though, for a new pastor to take over in a church, sometimes people have unrealistic expectations for what the new pastor should be like. There's an old story about a church long ago that was searching for a pastor. It was not a Methodist church, so you know, where there would be a bishop and cabinet who would identify the best possible candidate. It was a sort of church that had to con consider multiple applicants. The church received a letter from an applicant which read as follows. Understanding your pulpit is vacant, I would like to apply for the position. Although my health is not the best, I have been a preacher with much success and also some success as a writer and, lead and leader. I am over 50. I have never preached in one place for more than three years. In some places, I have left town after my work caused riots and disturbances. <laughs> I must admit I have been in jail a few times, but, but not because of any real wrongdoing. I have not gotten along well with religious leaders in some towns. In fact, some have threatened and even attacked me physically. I'm not too good at keeping records. I've been known to forget whom I have baptized. However, if you can use me, I shall do my best for you. Would you hire that applicant? The letter was signed, the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote the words that we heard in the scripture this morning to the church in Corinth admitting in the course of that letter that he was not sure who he had baptized there. He wrote while he was serving in Ephesus. Paul spent a year and a half founding the church in Corinth. He then spent three years total in Ephesus, his longest stay. His work in Eph Ephesus led to a riot. In fact, in much of his work, he encountered a lot of resistance and all sorts of disturbances. Furthermore, after he left the church, it was not always smooth sailing for the congregation in the aftermath. That was the case in Corinth. 
The big problem in Corinth was that a few years after Paul left, the church divided into factions. Our United Methodist Church as a whole is dividing right now, continuing this pattern of church division that goes all the way back to the New Testament. At our annual conference this past week, 237 churches disaffiliated from the East Ohio Conference. That's about a third of the total number of churches in the East Ohio Conference. Most of the disaffiliated churches were very small congregations, typically rural. Uh, 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 Roughly half of the disaffiliated churches were congregations that had an average Sunday worship attendance of 25 or less. So the 414 churches that remain in the East Ohio Conference, the United Methodists, uh, do represent the great bulk of the active membership of our congregation, as well as really the financial strength of, of the whole conference. Nevertheless, it's a difficult experience to have this kind of a division occurring. Nationwide, about 15% of United Methodist Churches have disaffiliated to date. That number will keep climbing as conferences like East Ohio keep approving these disaffiliations. It all has to go through the summertime conference process. The issue at the center of it all, in spite of what people may sometimes say, the issue is is the issue of how welcoming the church should be towards LGBTQ persons. The main body of the United Methodist Church, of which we are a part, has moved to become fully welcoming and affirming toward LGBTQ persons, but some congregations do not want to be a part of that. This never became a hugely divisive issue for the Kent Church, although we did have our own division over it. In early 2019, anticipating important movements that were unfolding in our denomination and wanting to help people think clearly about what the Bible says on the subject, I preached a sermon series entitled God's Word on Human Sexuality, the basis for a later book. I made the case that the Bible has historically been misinterpreted in this realm, that people have very often looked at the scripture through the lens of their own cultural upbringing, and that when seen in its proper context, the biblical message would actually move us to love and accept all people for who they are. Not everyone agreed with what I said, which is okay. In the United Methodist Church, you can disagree with the preacher on any subject and still be considered an upstanding and worthy member of the congregation. But on top of what the preacher said, our church council overwhelmingly voted to align our church with the Reconciling Network, a fellowship of United Methodist churches that were advocating for the stance that the whole United Methodist Church in America now effectively has, fully affirming LGBTQ persons. And the church council adopted the broad welcome statement that you now see on our church website. At that point, some of our members decided they did not want to be a part of a church with such a stance, and they withdrew from membership. For an entire church to disaffiliate from the denomination, There has to be a significant number of people in the congregation pushing for disaffiliation, usually with the pastor also really advocating pushing for 
disaffiliation so that it finally comes to a congregational vote. And at that point, two-thirds of the members voting have to vote for disaffiliation, which then begins a process of fulfilling additional procedural and financially steps uh, in order to actually disaffiliate. The, the Kent Church was never remotely close to that. We had perhaps maybe 5% of our members choose to withdraw, and in the aftermath, other people came into the church so that while this was a difficult and turbulent time, we were able to maintain a broad spiritual unity in the congregation. And this is something to treasure. This congregation has no factions. There is a wonderful unity in the church. Diversity of perspectives, but unity of spirit, common uh, purpose in, in following our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's, it's something truly to treasure a value in this church. And spiritual unity is exactly what Paul was seeking to achieve in Corinth. Near the beginning of the letter, he said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. Churches, however, have struggled with that appeal for ages. Church divisions, of course, do not always happen over weighty matters such as theology or biblical interpretation. In Corinth, the division was over personalities. Different factions identified themselves with different preachers. Some identified with Paul, some with Apollos who came to Corinth after Paul, some identified with Peter, and some, seeking to trump everyone else, said that they identified with Christ. I've seen exactly the same phenomenon in contemporary churches where some people will like the new preacher, some prefer the old preacher, some idolize the founding pastor from long ago. In addressing that situation, Paul used two images which are probably the best New Testament models for a time of transition in church leadership. One was the image of a garden. As he said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God, but God gave the growth. So, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. In creating and tending a garden, there are many stages in the work. You till the soil, you plant the seed, you water, then you weed. Paul left out that part. Each type of work is different, but each is very important, for it all contributes to the purpose of creating a fruitful garden. In the life of a church, different pastors, different members of the church contribute in various ways, and it all furthers the overall mission of the church. Moreover, Paul pointed out the real power behind the development of the garden, as he said, God gives the growth. To the ancient farmer, it was obvious that the farmer did not create the seed or the sunshine or the water or the amazing process by which a seed develops into a mature plant. In a church, it is God who empowers all the growth. And thus, as Paul went on to say, we are God's co-workers. We join with God in being a part of God's work. The original Greek that is translated co-workers or people working together is the word synergoi, from which we get the word synergy, 
Synergy is what happens in a healthy church where there are no divisions, but where people are working with one another under God's inspiration, valuing one another, dedicated to a common purpose. Later in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul would say along similar lines that as members of the church, we are like the many parts of a body, each part being different, but each being important. And the body thrives when all those parts are working together. The other major image that Paul used for the church in the scripture passage that we heard was that of a building. As he said, according to the grace given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each builder choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Paul started the work in Corinth. Now others were building on it. In the process of building, each new phase is quite different. Our church is experiencing that right now as we're taking part in an apostle build, building a home along with Habitat for Humanity for a family in Ravenna. The foundation is one thing, then there's the framing, then there's the finished work. Each phase involves very different elements, which is a good thing because you don't want the finished walls to look like the foundation. When Dr. Howe begins work in this church, he will respect what has been done in the past. My sense is he will want to carefully build upon what is here. But you should hope that in due time, he will start to do things differently because that's how the whole structure of the church progresses. This church has had many pastors. Just go down to the history wall, a little hallway that goes down to the, the elevator uh, and look at the list of pastors of this church. There's a long, long, long list of names. Each pastor has been unique. Each one has added a different layer to God's building. Now it is time for a new layer to emerge. Every layer is solid because it all rests on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But of course, it's not simply the pastor who does the building. It is all the members of the church who are those co-workers with God. And this church is extraordinarily gifted because of how the members of this church have been working together through the ages. Across more than 200 years, this church has grown from being a Methodist class meeting in a cabin to being today one of the 10 largest churches in the East Ohio Conference. We have a fantastic facility, all paid for because of how people have given in years past. We have one of the strongest records of mission giving in the East Ohio Conference because of how people in this church have a commitment to reach out to a hurting world. We have many elements of our church life that are just amazing. Consider, as one example, our music program. Few churches have a sanctuary choir like ours, a choir of such size and quality that leads in such extraordinary ways and even sings through the summer. Few churches have the kind of incredible Christmas cantata that our New Spirit Ensemble produces each year. 
Few churches these days have handbell choirs, let alone two, one for youth and one for adults. Few churches have the kind of creative tradition of children's musicals that this church has. Few churches have such a spectacular organ as the refurbished organ we now have in this sanctuary, or the outstanding organist who brings such music out of it. Few churches have so many gifted instrumentalists and soloists who share occasionally in worship. Lots of churches have praise bands, and I have heard quite a few of them, but I have never heard a praise band that moves me in quite the way that our worship band does at our contemporary service. If I talked about every amazing area of this church, I would be talking all day, but we have a luncheon. <laughs> we can all be grateful for the many ways in which people of this church have been building for God's kingdom. At the same time, even as we treasure the heritage of the past and the many good things we now have in the present, it is very important, as I noted in last week's sermon, that we expect to move forward in new ways into the future. When I was in seminary, one of my good friends, Kathy Monroe, gave me a gift of a United Methodist ritual book. It's a small book containing scriptures, prayers, and other elements for occasional services such as weddings and funerals. In the back of the book, she wrote to Dave, whose ministry will certainly help people come to grips with the tough questions of life in an intelligent, honest way. Move over, Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth was one of the towering theologians of the early 20th century, so, so th this was a bit overstated. But in any case, I began using this particular ritual book. And although I later moved to a contemporary version for weddings, I continued to use this book for funerals. It gradually became pretty ragged, but I kept using this book for every funeral for 44 years. Even though I cannot read this, this, this print is way too small for me to see anymore. But, but I don't have to read it. I, I, by now I know all the scriptures and prayers by heart. So I, you know, I just kind of glance at it from time to time to let people know I'm, I'm quoting scripture. I have the same sort of issue with, with my sermon notes, but, but there I've greatly benefited from the fact that I've been able to move from the typewriter font that I had at the start of my ministry to a computer font which I can make very large. Even so, Mavis tells me that I have been squinting when trying to look at my sermon. Of course, I could start wearing reading glasses, but if I did that, then you and everyone else here would be even blurrier than you already are. <laughs> so instead of putting on glasses, I am retiring. <laughs> Solves that. You know, sometimes we get attached to treasured items and familiar ways of doing things from our past. We don't want to change. But there comes a time when new approaches are in order, and now is such a time for this church. 
we can value traditions in the church. But my prayer for this congregation is that you will truly welcome Dr. Howe, prepared to adopt new tools and new approaches, and that in the whole process, you will continue to live out the admonition of the Apostle Paul that there be no divisions among you so that you continue to be fellow workers in God's building, in God's field, and so that this vineyard continues to bear much fruit. It has been a great joy and privilege for me to be a part of this church's journey for the past 28 years. I know that as I depart from this position as senior pastor, people are inclined to comment about various things that I've done here. But before stepping out of this pulpit, I want to set the record straight. First of all, I would be worthless without my wife. Mavis is an incredible partner whose love and support create the bedrock for my life and ministry. I'm also blessed with three terrific children who are a joy in our household. Two could not be here today. Rachel is doing an internship in North Carolina in connection with her graduate work at Duke. And Joshua is preaching his final sermon at the Vine Church in Alliance, where he's been serving as the part-time student pastor of that congregation. I am grateful to Nathan, home for the summer from Ohio State, who was willing to endure this whole retirement thing for his dad in order to represent all three siblings. I also must emphasize, I am not the only pastor here. Doug Denton has been a wonderful colleague for the past two decades and has carried on an extremely impactful and meaningful ministry in this congregation. You'll be able to celebrate that two weeks from today. I've been grateful for our whole church and for the church staff, a tremendously gifted group that works so effectively as a team. I am grateful to each one of you for all the ways that you have blessed my life. Above all, I am thankful to God who has given me these years and this calling and every ability that I have. For it is God who gives the growth and God to whom all glory is due. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give thanks for how your spirit has been moving among us in years past. We thank you for this congregation, how you draw us together in the life of your church, how we are able to grow together in faith, how we're able to share together in ministry, able to reach out into the world today with your good news and your everlasting love. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we move into new directions in the future, that your spirit indeed will guide us. We pray that you would continue to be at work through the many members of this congregation, through the new pastoral leadership, guiding and blessing, leading this church as the 
The fellowship of believers here moves in fresh ways into the future. We thank you for the broader church, how we are connected with one another. We lift up the Seville Church this morning. We lift up our entire annual conference, praying, Lord, that you would guide our East Ohio Conference to move in new ways in these times, to be able to be empowered, to be yet more effective in being witnesses to your truth and goodness in our age. We thank you, Lord, for the wondrous gifts that you bestow upon us. We give special thanks this morning for the gift of new life. And we give praise to you for the birth of little Faye Carol Alderson and pray your blessing upon that family, on all families, O oh Lord, as, as we grow as your children. O oh Lord, we give thanks for those wondrous ways that you continue to speak to us and work in our lives often in a fashion beyond which we truly comprehend, inspire us to continue to open our hearts and lives to you, that we may join together as co-workers, that we may follow as you lead us, that we may recognize your calling for each of our lives, and that, Lord, as we follow you, we may experience the full wonder of your grace, drawn by your love, living in the light of your promises, and lifting to you always the praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.